Hello and welcome to another edition of Humanitarian AI Today, a podcast series produced by the Humanitarian AI Meetup Groups in Cambridge, San Francisco, New York City, London, Toronto and Zurich. Today we're introducing the Humanitarian AI interview series on intellectual property law and with us joining us from Cambridge is Daniel Dardani who specializes in helping MIT students launching startups, deals with intellectual property law issues. He's here to tell us all about himself and this very important and very current topic. Welcome Daniel, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm glad to be here and share this time together. My goal is a humble one. I'll consider it a success if I can help someone listening to understand a little bit more either about intellectual property or about artificial intelligence, hopefully both. What got you into this area and what were the concerns you face? I know that you can talk to philosophical and practical matters, so do you want to just paint the picture so we can get to know? Sure. I've been working in technology transfer for the past 17 years. That's the field where they're primarily concerned with driving innovations out of the ivory tower and out of the university environment and into the marketplace. And so I've been dealing with intellectual property matters for quite a long time. And my interest in the field even predates that work. I've, I've always been sort of fascinated by the topic of intellectual property. I think it has many lessons to offer scholars as well as practitioners in terms of what it's for, who it serves, is society benefited ultimately from it? These are questions that we continue to ask over and over again, whether traditional incentive models have their place in an economic society, whether we ought to move to perhaps a more open sharing platform, whether or not the Western ideas of idolizing the sole inventor who has a eureka moment as opposed to more a group collaboration like we find in non-Western societies. These are all interesting topics, probably not germane to today's program, but things that I've been noodling over in my time uh, thinking about intellectual property, again, as a professional, as well as as a scholar of the subject. It's quite the new frontier and the sky's the limit. Do you want to just talk to us a bit about what you do at MIT? Let's break it down there and perhaps we can, you know, look at some practical applications and then dive deeper into the vast scope of this area. So it's been long known that universities are nurseries of innovative activity, and it's partly because of their mandate to do lots of research, oftentimes funded by the federal government, but increasingly by uh, industrial and corporate monies. But this serves as a, a rich platform for widespread research across a whole spectrum of topics. And coincidentally, this work tends to have output, deliverables, uh, innovations, ideas that come out with it. And quite simply, technology transfer is the ability for the university to leverage those innovations, those ideas, and use intellectual property as a platform, as a vehicle for helping get those ideas out of the university and into the market, meaning products and services that citizens uh, can actually use to enrich their lives. You can argue that before technology transfer practice, these ideas were still being created, but perhaps they were being left to die on the vine, or they would become dusty thesis dissertations that you could find in the library, but there really would be not a lot of work to convert those into reality. And using intellectual property and the incentive that intellectual property offers those who want to become a stakeholder in using it 
the thought was that you can better turn those into reality, better uh, transition these things from just papers or you know dusty dissertations and library stacks and, and have companies invest and resources into bringing them forward so that they turn into you know, new medicines, that they turn into new technologies, that they turn into the type of things that give us better telecommunications, better high resolution television programs, things like that. Right. So the typical kinds of intellectual property law that you're typically dealing with MIT students and what are alumni seeking? Can you talk around any specific examples? Yeah. So our office deals with uh, innovations across the board from you name it, all, all different types of departments and disciplines. I particularly work on a portfolio of innovations that are more along software and algorithms and sort of copyright matters. So as such, I I tend to deal with a lot of things that are IT-focused, computing-focused, and these include things like artificial intelligence and machine learning applications, cybersecurity, and just other types of computing algorithms and the like. Right, thank you. And is there any, um, are there any untypical new or surprising requests or concerns you're seeing that just um, stretch it into the new frontier? You know, what, what are you finding that's specific to property law? Yeah, so I think one of the things that we're seeing, and perhaps the reason why I've been asked to speak to your folks who are listening in, is there, there seems to be a, a resurgence of what we'll call artificial intelligence or machine learning applications. And on some level that has become a buzzword, although the term artificial intelligence you know, does date back to the 1950s and 60s with folks like Marvin Minsky and, and other seminal leaders in the space. But, but what's changed recently is kind of the explosion of processing power and the explosion of data. And those two things have really allowed the dream of uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning to be rediscovered. And so I think a lot of questions, uh, a lot of what we're seeing now is, you know, what are the potential that these innovations have and what will they mean for us as a society? What will they mean for us as an economy? What will they mean for us on uh, sort of other uh, non-technical fields like in our everyday lives, in justice, in other types of humanitarian and social economic factors. So the intellectual property as applied to artificial intelligence, I think, is is something that is is timely and something that we'll need to unpack. That sounds great. And I didn't use the word intellectual earlier. I used property and that's because it's it's still quite hard to grapple with and define. We talked earlier about data is tough to think about. I don't want to steer us away from the practical things quite yet but um what happens when ai is the inventor or you know all these kind of scenarios where yeah um, we might be moving too far forward but as far as the humanitarian community goes could you maybe break down what artificial intelligence is from an intellectual property law vantage point yeah that's Great, thanks. So let me start by saying IP doesn't necessarily have a vantage point in and of itself. Intellectual property is there to serve us, society, capital S. And it will ebb and flow depending upon a lot of other variables, like who happens to be the director of the USPTO, uh, who is the currently the president and the administration in Washington, D.C., 
Um, it also has other global undertones via WIPO and other things. But you know, ultimately, intellectual property is going to depend on the economy, on socio-technical forces that inform the kind of things that we want our IP laws to protect. A good example of this could be uh, looking at the copyright of software. It didn't exist until software became more and more ubiquitous and important to our economy. And sort of the recognition that if the US wanted to be a leader in, in software innovations and in and bringing software products to the world, it may want to consider adding it to the intellectual property laws of the country. And so almost magically, around 1980, we suddenly see software being added to the Copyright Act as a type of fixed work of expression. And so setting the fulcrum point for society that you know, we want our IP laws to be strong, but not too strong. We want to protect the incentives for people to create new innovations and new works, but we also want to make sure we protect the public good and the rights of the common. And so setting that fulcrum point remains an interesting challenge. And again, it's, it's informed by all these other factors from you know, geopolitics to economic forces. But, but nonetheless, I think that's what makes the topic so much fun to work and study in. But, but let me give the person out there listening a little bit more of a concrete answer. You know, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and I'm going to probably use those terms synonymously, they're just technical ways of solving certain problems. And they're entitled to IP protection no more or less than any other type of innovation since those statutes were enshrined in our constitution back in you know, 1789. So patents, copyrights, and trademarks, trade secrets, all of these things apply to artificial intelligence, to machine learning. And that means that they can be applied to new useful and not obvious algorithms, to methods, to models, to computer simulations, to certain types of data schemas, and even software code implementing these concepts or expressing these methodologies. Now, what I've said is nothing new or special to AI. These are just what the buckets of intellectual property normally protect for anyone, whether we're talking about a mechanical invention, electrical invention, or even some kind of medical bioengineering. So these laws have always been there to sort of protect the cutting edge of these technical fields. And just think of AI or machine learning as the latest instance of or or group of inventions that are seeking these protections. But that being said, they're also subject to all the same pitfalls, the objections and rejections that are imposed on all of these intellectual properties as well. And we can unpack those two in a minute if you like. Great. What I was going to ask Nick, what, what's protectable and how would you like we, to talk about? Yeah, in? we can get into that. Great. Um, and there, there's kind of two ways to think about this question. There's the question of how IP laws apply to these specific artificial intelligence or machine learning innovations. And again, as I said a minute ago, these are subject to the normal everyday trials and tribulations of regular IP prosecution. A patent, for example, must always overcome the normal new, not obvious, and useful requirements in addition to something called Section 112, which are written description. But lately, we've also seen coming from the courts, some increased scrutiny over what they call Section 101, or subject matter eligibility. So a patent in any field 
must overcome these 101 rejections that show that it actually isn't an abstract idea or it isn't just mathematics or some of these other things. And AI is particularly prone to some of these objections because when you think of what an uh, artificial intelligence or machine algorithm do, sometimes you can um, distill them down to just a mathematical model layers of a neural network that are processing numbers and increasing sort of weights and activating within the layers really distills down to some mathematics that are you know happening within this mathematical model and yeah. mathematical models have long been held to be not patentable they're what they call a judicial exception mm. and they can otherwise deny a person's right to obtain a patent so one of the things we'll look at when we're thinking about intellectual property is applied to algorithms and other types of uh, techniques is how do we overcome the subject matter eligibility and the sort of normal judicial exceptions. That's super interesting. And you mentioned earlier, WIPO is not really um, something you, you know, specialize in, but they've started open processes to lead to things around IP policy implications. I mean, how things are forming, changing. You mentioned the constitution you know, are we keeping up with everything? Is the law keeping up? What is your advice so far to the law? And um, yeah, what it's, should be our concern, you know, just sure. jumping into this? Sure. So, I mean, I, th I think there's a couple of different ways I can answer that. I think some of the, some of the brilliance of the early words in, you know, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 8 of the Constitution was that, you know, the founding fathers did not know what was going to come. They didn't have all the answers, but they wanted to create a system that would otherwise incentivize the creation of new works, um, the creation of new technologies. Back then, they called them the useful arts, because they felt strongly that people will otherwise share freely and openly these ideas, at least on paper, if they're incentivized or given some sort of quid pro quo to do so. And that's exactly what the patent right does is for 20 years, it allows the inventor to essentially exploit the ideas contained in that patent and shut out any competition. But then of course, after that 20 years, that patent application, which has been written to a very high level of specificity is able for others to read and others to build upon. And the goal there was to encourage this sort of openness and this sharing, as opposed to forcing people to sort of treat their inventions and their best ideas as, as secrets, um, perhaps only available to those who might join a guild or some other membership in order to gain access to this special knowledge. And, and I still think there's a lot of credibility in that model for how you know a society and an economy can grow it's been now an experiment that's been run over 200 years and elsewhere in other countries and it, it it still seems to be having a lot of success now the question as to whether or not we need to be rethinking about new models there are those out there that are looking at new models and you could look at movements in open source and other uh, open sharing as a little bit of a, a direct counter argument to the incentive model for innovation. It says you don't need to give people actually these rights in order for them to create and to innovate. They will create and innovate just for the very sake of wanting to participate and freely operate in a collective and, and share amongst all. Right. And there certainly is evidence that that seems to support that. 
So I, I'm not here necessarily to, to, to say, you know, which side is right or which side is wrong. I don't think there's convincing data either way to, to make those claims, but those are certainly questions that are being asked in the contemporary world. So would you be able to say something about how current and emerging open source licenses treat AI? So yes, I think in order to answer that, we have to talk a little bit more about what open source is. And in order to understand open source, you know, you have to understand a little bit about what a copyright is. And, and copyrights are essentially distilled down to an original work of authorship that's fixed in a tangible medium of expression. And anytime you feel you have an original work of authorship that can be fixed in some medium, and that medium can be either something tangible, like a painting on a canvas, but it could also be something intangible, like the information that's stored in the cloud or something that's on the, a drive of a computer uh, electronically. These are all works nonetheless. And the software lending itself to that type of intellectual property protection would otherwise give the an author of a program exclusive rights under copyright law to that work and to any derivatives of that work, modifications, if you will, including the right to distribute all of that. And, and so open source became a, an idea for how to disseminate particularly software programs so that you could take part in collective development as opposed to just relying on whichever programmers happen to, to work at your company and actually be assigned to develop modifications to your company's work, wouldn't it be great if we can just put this code out there for any developer, any talented programmer, whether they work for my company or whether they are a teenage kid halfway around the world, they might have something to contribute. And open source was a way of providing access to these types of programs so that people could build collectively without fear of violating traditional exclusive rights of copyright. So that was a little bit of a background on your question. How could that inform or read upon AI and things like that? Well, open source programs are agnostic to the type of technologies that are being used to distribute them. I can open source a piece of code that is part of trying to teach a car how to drive without a driver, or I can open source a piece of code that is just another way of allowing the game of Fortnite to, to work better. And so it doesn't really matter from an open source perspective what is actually being propagated. What matters are the rules of engagement. Are folks being presented with an opportunity to engage and play in a sandbox where everybody knows what the rules of engagement are? And that's all open source is. It's a series of licenses. There are more than one. I think that's an important part for you know a listener out there to understand is open source is not one thing it's actually a series of licenses and they all have different flavors of what you can and cannot do under that license but the key is that the terms are known a priori so that you can understand which licenses you might want to put your code out or which licenses you might want to partake in uh, in contributing to a larger effort and so there is an opportunity for open source to play a role with AI distribution because open source is a way of making sure lots of AI engineers 
have the ability to collectively build something. Mm. So again, if we wanted to build a car that was driverless, mm -hmm. an autonomous vehicle, I might decide to want to crowdsource how to build that software and I can use an open source program and hope that other experts from around the world would mm -hmm. be willing to join me in coding that autonomous vehicle software, giving it a, you know, not just birthing it, but, you know, sort of nursing it through adolescence and on into maturity. Mm. And my kind of thought here or question, I'm just wondering, you know, who would be at the end of when you connect the dots to when something might go wrong and, you know, invariably it will, who, who's accountable? Who's accountable? Yeah. So now, now, level. now you're understanding some of the, uh, uh, sort of other forces at play in, in any group environment or any group development. These are on some level, you know, psychological questions as much as they are technical questions. And I guess I would say the group kind of tends to answer these questions for itself at a group level. On some times there might be some quarterback, if you will, whose job it is to assemble all the pieces from different contributors and organize them and present them in somewhat of a coherent fashion in a repository, like something like GitHub. Other times there is no central agent, there is no organizing mothership, and it's just left to the collective to decide whether they wanna fix bugs or not, or which bugs they would fix. And of course, those types of developments have their own evolutionary path. And I think that's both the beauty and the difficulty in open source systems in general is that they will evolve differently because at their very nature, they're being acted upon, organized, and in some cases um, controlled by different factions, different regimes, different personalities, uh, and different groups. So you get all the same problems and challenges of any macroscopic group dynamic. I'm just trying to, in my mind, help to land this. And, and you mentioned earlier, and I wonder if this is a good time to talk about data is tough to think about. What's tough? I'm curious because we deal with a humanitarian community. How, how is data treated in, in this context? And have you got some thoughts to share on that? Yeah, that's a fabulous question. Thanks. Uh, data is an intriguing sort of, has an intriguing story in all this. At a basic level, there's really a question of whether or not data is protectable. And this stems in large part to longstanding US copyright law that says facts and basic information and charts and lists and trivia are not copyrightable because they're the type of information that is obvious or you know, too simple for anyone to own a monopoly on. Now there are exceptions, compilations of facts can qualify and if you arrange the data in a original enough way, like an almanac does or a white pages of a subscriber a phone list and other advertisements, then you may be able to get protection from copyright on the, the work as a whole. And this means that certain database schemas and other types of things where there is uh, a ton of uh, originality applied might qualify for copyright. But lots of folks don't bother to test whether their data is or isn't copyrightable. And so they tend to use data as akin to regular property that's in their possession. That is to say, they kind of make decisions about whether to share it, keep it as a secret, as in a trade secret, 
or to license it under a data use agreement and things like that. Now, when we get to like public corpuses of data, we have to grapple with this very same question, whether to make a, a public repository of data freely available or perhaps to put it behind a paywall or, uh, and I'm, I'm not even talking right now about medical records or personally identifiable health information such as HIPAA and human test subjects. I think, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll understand that later, but if data is treated as information, which can or cannot be withheld, we have to make the question as to what happens to these big and larger uh, groups of data that are often being relied on to train AI models, to train these algorithms. And what we're seeing is um, a split where some of these uh, data sources are made available freely to share, in which case they can be used by researchers to, to train various types of algorithms and models. And we're seeing other data subscribers or, or data collectors choose to try and commoditize or to earn money from licensing data and from sharing that data. And I think the question about, from a humanitarian perspective, you know, what's the right thing to do? I think this is one of the things that we'll see increasingly being addressed in the coming decades, are whether or not this is a, an area where regulation really needs to set in. And regulation might need to de determine um, you know, whether or not certain databases are allowed to remain behind a paywall, or what is the minimum uh, amount of security, the amount of scrubbing, the amount of uh, sanctifying and making sure that the data is valid and usable that has to happen before these databases can be used to train things that are going to inform uh, you know, civic applications of AI and other things. Well, thanks for that, that great answer. And um, I'm just trying to maybe bridge the open source initiatives, potentially. Can you see any leverage from IP law and open source licenses to help protect humanitarian actors and aid beneficiaries? Any cases maybe to help walk us through what comes to mind? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not sure open source is the right vehicle for achieving that. I mean, again, as I mentioned, open source is agnostic to any specific code or any specific purpose or scope or function. The open source software is really about leveling the playing field in terms of access and making sure people know these rules of engagement for the different types of licenses, again, a priori. And they vary, right? The BSD or the MIT open source license are very permissive and generally allow for a lot of modification and free distribution, whereas the GNU general public license tends to be more restrictive uh, and imposes these restrictions downstream on others. It's a traditional copyleft license, as you may have heard. And so to answer your question, I think, again, this is where regulation is really going to have to have a, a part in the story. And it's not unlike a, a similar where scientists tried to self-regulate recombinant DNA and genetic research without endangering the public health. You know, the public has is a stakeholder in the AI machine game because increasingly these techniques are going to be adopted. They are going to be used uh, all across the board, not just in things like driving our vehicles, but but in, in, in determining perhaps uh, in, in looking at uh, in criminals 
trying to determine being used in courts, perhaps for evidence. And we already know there are biases in artificial intelligence and machine learning applications because there are biases in data that's in part informing them. And so if we're going to rely on these in not just scientific halls of universities, but in civic and judicial and other governmental offices, then I think we do have to have regulation to make sure that the data that's being fed in has a certain level of robustness, has a certain level of certification in terms of it being clean, in terms of it being approved. And there, there needs to otherwise be um, this acknowledgement that we can't just rely on what the scientists are doing to regulate themselves, but we're also going to need these third-party, uh, independent, civic-minded organizations to, to help inform and make sure that these technologies are fair and equitable uh, across all sectors of society, mm. for all demographics as well. And you wear so many different hats. You mentioned earlier about uh, lecturing at Harvard as well. I'm curious, what kind of questions come to you that, you know, I can't think of right now, you know, you're the expert and I'd love to hear <laughs> just some questions that have been interesting to you that you'd like to share with our community. That'd be really, really lovely to, if you could share some. Yeah, I, I, I think what seems to get people excited mm -hmm. is this sort of new set of questions that doesn't just look at AI as a technology that is cutting edge, that AI uh, law is being used in part to help bring forth and, 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 and be adopted. But what happens when AI itself becomes the inventor? If there is kind of a, a sentient robot, uh, a creator, a producer of inventions or original works of expression that traditionally has been reserved for human agents and human actors. You know, what is our IP system going to do? How is it going to deal with non-human you know, patent applicants or copyright creators? And I think that is, uh, uh, and that it's understandable. I, I, I think those questions are wonderful and they capture the imagination. They fire possibilities within us and, I have those same questions as I get from uh, many of the folks uh, who I've worked with. Unfortunately, the answer right now is not so imaginative. Consensus is building that non-human actors will not be uh, entertained as IP applicants. In fact, just the other day, we received a sort of confirmation of this from the patent office, which rejected a petition to have a patentee be a non-human entity, uh, a creative engine, if you will, a creative machine that was listed as the, um, per the thing that conceived of the invention. And the courts unequivocally said that the patent law and all of its language throughout history has always been written to assume a natural person being the applicant. And so as of today, the, the patent office is disinterested in entertaining, uh, you know, sentient artificial intelligent beings from the future as being creators and owners of intellectual property. Can you share what that invention was? Is that something you you can talk um, about? I don't recall the specifics of this particular invention. Um, we could we could look it up. It was this subject. It was it was all in the in the the petition itself, but. 
but you know, increasingly there's going to be, I, I think this also is uh, another example of this is with copyright law and perhaps someone out listening out in your audience is familiar with the uh, monkey selfie, which was a famous case where this uh, monkey was able to snap a picture of itself. Um, and it was a wonderful photo. And the question that raged on in the courts for years after is, you know, who actually owned the copyright to that photo? Was it the photographer whose equipment um, happened to be set up that day in the park? Or was it actually the monkey that went over to the uh, equipment when the photographer happened to be stepped away and played with the buttons until it actually snapped a picture perfectly? Right. So it was a happy little accident there and it, it, it opened up a whole <laughs> can right. of worms. Well, go, taking it back to AI developers, maybe, who's responsible for their creations and... Furthermore, if their creations can expose sensitive information, can you can you think of any examples that you can talk about there? Well, again, the the artificial and the machine learning technique is is just an engine that tries to marry certain input with some output. And there are many examples of how this classification problem can be applied from things like playing chess to all the way up to looking at whether certain MRIs, mammograms, or x-rays have cancer cells displayed or not. And so that, that still remains the, the interesting part of AI are all the different types of questions that we will use these techniques to answer and answer in a very precise way, if not an una, unappealing way. And what I mean by that is the although the, the the technologies allow for, in most cases, if they're trained properly, very accurate and very precise answers to the question, they really cannot give you a window into why they arose at that decision or answer. It's very much a black box. And the more data you feed into this black box, the better it knows what the answer it is. But it cannot tell you any logical decision tree or binary as to how it got to that answer. And that might be fine if you're just trying to determine if this picture you're uploading is a penguin versus um, a backyard fence. But it's a different question if you're just trying to tell a patient whether or not they should have surgery for their cancer or not. And sometimes a patient might want to ask the question, well, why? And again, the AI technique uh, doesn't really work with whys. It just works with hows. So when it comes to the development of AI and, and sort of sensitive information that might be um, part of it, some of that sensitive information might be part of its training, might be in how you fine tune or up the precision of the decision tree. And if those techniques are released, the goal is not to also release the data, the sensitive data that in part gave that model its precision. And again, that, that's an ongoing issue that sometimes is dealt with side agreements or non-disclosure agreements, confidentiality agreements, and other things like HIPAA regulations and uh, GDPR and things like that where you know, there are other things set up to not disclose those types of sensitive, identifiable health or medical information. But, but even if these things are not medical in nature, but perhaps trying to identify faces in a crowd or actions of people 
to perhaps correlate with whether or not there might be, I don't know, um, you know, homeland security issues. Those types of the information that those things will be using um, might be very sensitive and could actually pose a risk. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm sitting in my home right now because we're currently sort of on quarantine due to the, the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. And one of, the, one of the technologies that people are optimistic about using has to do with contact tracing and being able to sort of read people's whereabouts based on Bluetooth technology that might be in their smartphone. And of course, that uh, being able to monitor uh, where people are and who they've come in contact with is, is very useful when you're trying to alert people about potential exposure to the coronavirus. But it is an enormous uh, hot potato when it comes to things like personal privileges and personal rights. And so being able to develop the technology while being sensitive to uh, these other issues about what that data is saying and whether that data oversteps some kind of personal privilege or personal right is, an, is going to always be an ongoing issue. And it's something that the scientists tend to not worry about initially because they're just so busy with trying to get something to work. But I, I do think protecting that and regulating that must be equally part of the decision process. Uh, in order to make sure that we don't give up too much freedom in the effort to try and rush to solutions. So what are you looking at for regulation? What's, what does that look like to you? Do you want to talk a little bit about regulation then? So again, I, I, don't, I don't speak from any uh, position of authority with regards to regulation. I think there are better uh, folks out there who are trained and experts in, in that area. So I would, I would defer to them. But what I do think is that it needs to be a conversation where the stakeholders who are part of the conversation are from all different aspects of the equation and not just the technologists or the legislators. I think there needs to be representatives from, from various sectors to make sure that all those voices are heard. I mentioned Asilomar uh, a little bit earlier ago, and you know, the, I guess one of the criticisms of Asilomar was it was a bunch of scientists regulating themselves, saying, don't worry, you know, we all got together and figured out what we can and cannot do uh, to make sure that the public is protected. And that's fine, but sometimes the scientists need outside opinions as well. Being the first person we're, we're talking to in this series, is there any advice you want to share to the humanitarian AI community on what you've come across and um, what we should all be thinking about and any help you might need from this community moving forward? So I think if, if we're looking at takeaways, what I guess I'd like um, someone listening to this to think about is... The tendency is to think that this is all new, and because it's all new, we must sort of rethink old established norms in order to modify them for a world which we could not fathom in the past. And on some level, I think that's valid, but I also think that we have to remember when we're talking about AI or machine learning, you have to be able to separate it into its, its different parts. 
And at, at a basic level, it's just like any other innovation in any other technology. I think if, if the United States or if anybody wants to be at the forefront in leading these innovations and in part of you know, commercial use, then I think intellectual property has a pretty good track record for how to help do that. And I don't necessarily see drastic changes being needed in order to do some of that. When we start looking at AI and ML as sort of a futuristic, if they are, if they are becoming the actual inventors, then I think there would be need for some modification, if not overhauling of some of our uh, older statutes, which again are biased towards natural living persons. But I, I do think that there is a richness in intellectual property already that can accommodate things like patenting of algorithms, patenting of methodologies, that copyrights can handle the uh, protection for code implementations of these algorithms. And for those who are more willing to openly share those, the open source software initiative is available. The Creative Commons initiative is available for, for those who are more openly prone to giving away as opposed to commercially licensing. And so I think the field is rich enough to accommodate all of these without having to worry about hitting the reset button or radically rethinking these hallmarks or these pillars that have worked for many other technologies and many other emerging technologies over the years. AI and machine learning might just once again be the one that's foremost on our minds right now, but it certainly won't be the last buzzword to come down the pike. Has done has a pretty good track record of being able to provide leadership and to provide incentivization for innovative technologies to come forth. And so I guess that's that's something I would like to impart. Great. And you did talk about COVID-19 galvanizing everybody and all these things going in the name of, you know, just tracking everything. Um, this level of awareness that this has brought about, is there anything else around that you want to share? I just sort of caught up with that question while you were giving us the takeaway. Sorry, it came in a bit late. And then I guess we can start wrapping up this conversation. It's It's been quite quite an interesting intriguing amazing kind of introduction to this this yeah great frontier i'm personally just out of my depth here obviously thanks for helping <laughs> you're doing <laughs> helping land this and you know uh, i think uh, i think you're doing a fine job and part of this is you know the conversation is not just for folks who have lots of uh prior experience or training in intellectual property i think Intellectual property is one of the subjects that affects everyone, whether an expert or a layperson, because I bet you've come into contact with intellectual property more than a few dozen times already in just your morning routine, from the brands uh, on the clothes that you might be wearing to the copyright of the newspaper or the um, things that you're looking at online to the, the technologies that are ubiquitous in, in all of our devices and certainly in our you know, smartphones in our pockets. So, so IP does affect everyone. And I think the conversation should be least open to everyone to participate in, whether you understand all the concepts well, or whether you're just getting started in them. And perhaps it's going to be a podcast like this, that again, I hope introduces the subject to some listener out there, or perhaps if they're a little bit more expert, gives them a little bit more to ponder. 
But to specifically answer your question about what's going on in current events, I am seeing, I think, AI be considered just like anything else as a tool that can be used in technology development to fight a pandemic. And so just like any other modality, AI is going to probably be used, neural networks will probably be used to try and answer certain questions about diagnosis or about treatment or about efficacy of various medicines. And that's the sort of, I think, exciting part about AI and machine learning. It turns out that the world is a lot more complicated than people think and conventional programming and representing the world in the type of way that a, at least one that's been modeled on biomedical or the brain, which is why we get the term neural network, it tries to answer that question in a complete new way that allows it to, to find patterns in information that would otherwise be extremely difficult for a human doing conventional programming to do. And so it just opens up a whole class of, of problems that can be solved. And of course, COVID problems are going to be no different than the ones that will be solved. And in terms of open source, I'm finding that I think open source is increasingly being used as a way to get some of these AI or other types of computing techniques out into the world to be used, to be tested, to be turned into apps that we can all download and perhaps turn on and help with contact tracing and things like that. And so it's, it's interesting to me to see how open source is being used to speed up or expedite the turnaround time and the dissemination of some of these technologies. And that's pretty exciting for, for me to see from my vantage point as well. There's so much we can talk about. It brings to mind human rights, data protection, so many other massive areas we can cover. But thank you so much for talking to us today, Daniel Dardani from MIT. That brings this edition of Humanitarian AI today to a close.